This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Are you moving your business to Office 365? Working in the cloud can make your life a lot easier, but getting help, well, that's another story. And that's why you should check out AppRiver. They've got the most experienced support team in the business. You'll get free U.S.-based support from folks who care about helping you and actually know how. If you're going with Office 365, go with AppRiver. Try AppRiver services free. Visit appriver.com slash kickass. That's appriver.com slash kickass. And now, enjoy the podcast. Hello, Mr. Kennedy. Mr. Kennedy. Dev? See, you're still the man with all the influence. What the hell happened, Teddy? It was an accident. I was driving. A story like this could dominate the headlines for weeks. Chief, we got a body. A dead body holds a lot of secrets. Those can be the difference between guilt and innocence. So we need to be in control of them. There's not a lot of senators that are charged with manslaughter that go on to become president. This family perseveres. We have a true compass and we follow it. Five, four, three. Moses had a temper. Peter betrayed Jesus. I have Champa Quiddick. Moses had a temper, but he never left a girl at the bottom of the Red Sea. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis. Welcome to Kick-Ass News. That was the trailer for Chappaquiddick, a new movie that re-examines the car accident and ensuing scandal that cost a young woman her life and nearly ended the political career of a young Ted Kennedy. The events are largely seen through the eyes of Ted Kennedy's cousin, confidant, and political fixer, Joe Gargan who struggles with Joe Kennedy and the Kennedy political machine for the soul of his idealistic but morally confused best friend, a heartbreaking fight he's destined to lose. Gargan is played convincingly by Ed Helms of The Daily Show, The Office, and The Hangover Trilogy in his first major dramatic role. And today Ed comes on the podcast to talk about why the Chappaquiddick incident is an oft-forgotten chapter in America's modern political history, and how making the film led him to reassess the version of Camelot he grew up with. He also reveals how the Kennedy Damage Control Team took advantage of the moon landing to buy time, ponders Chappaquiddick's place in Ted Kennedy's larger legacy, and wonders how the scandal might have played out differently in the age of 24-hour news and social media. Ed Helms talks about working with fellow comic Jim Gaffigan on the film, bringing elements of dark comedy to the Kennedy story, and mastering that notoriously tricky Massachusetts accent. He also discusses his own politics, gleefully recalls exposing hypocrites and bad guys as a correspondent for The Daily Show, and says sometimes it was a little hard to be a Daily Show reporter and still be a nice guy. Plus, Ed talks about his start as a cocky, sarcastic voiceover guy, why he says it's good to be a fool in life, and bluegrass, bluegrass, bluegrass. Coming up with Ed Helms in just a moment.
You know Ed Helms' work from The Daily Show and The Office, as well as The Hangover Trilogy and other films. Now he's taking a turn toward the dramatic with his latest outing, Chappaquiddick, opening in theaters April 6th. Ed Helms, thanks for sitting down with me. Very happy to be here. Well, this was a really interesting film, I have to say, but this was probably by far for me the darkest hangover sequel yet. I mean, <laughs> car crash, a woman dies. Plus, I mean, what, what kind of a party town is Hyannisport? Let's be honest. Evidently, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, or Martha's Vineyard, rather. Yeah. It's quite, yeah, yeah. quite a party town. Um, <laughs> and uh, no, I agree. It is a, it's a dark and twisted uh, world that this movie lives in. And I... I Believe me, I did my damnedest to make it funny. Yeah. Um, and it just, uh, they didn't use any of my improv. I'll put it that way. <laughs> um, well, but. there is a certain amount of dark comedy to it. The Kennedy team are put in these situations of trying to cover up for Ted Kennedy. And at one point, he wants to publicly wear a neck brace yes. after the accident yes. and stuff like that. Yeah, there is a, there is a sort of... Um, there, there is a, a comedic aspect to the lengths that they go to, yeah, and just sort of how deeply uh, Ted spins out. There's something yeah. darkly funny about it, just because it's, um, it, you know, when somebody's just doing something so wrong and it's so obvious, and yet they're still confused about it. Somehow that's there. Somehow that's kind of funny, even though obviously mm. the. Uh, the events themselves and the fallout are are nothing but tragic. Uh, yeah, and in that sense, it sort of feels weirdly relevant to everything going on today when you talk about someone who's just completely unaware of <laughs> the bad decisions they're making and the weirdness and, and how what they're doing is completely out of line with like normal basic morality. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, you're right. And and the, um, I don't know, the, the, there's something that, uh, freaks me out a little bit, which is there's apparently a human capacity um, to uh, to to allow ourselves to be confused about things that are should be cut and dry. Yeah, and I think we yeah. all do it in certain and in, in small ways throughout our lives all the time, and it's a way of it's sort of this heuristic that our brain uses to sort of allow us to like ourselves at the end of the day, <laughs> <laughs> and certain people have that in spades. Um, and it, it seems to increase with power. I don't know which mm -hmm. comes first, you know, if it's something that, that, uh, um, that powerful people sort of attain or if it's something that, uh, that people who wind up in power already have or something, but it's, um, yeah, it's a slippery slope. Once you start to rationalize your actions like that. Yeah, Absolutely. It yeah, and another reason there is a little bit of dark comedy in this is because you're cast with Jim Gaffigan, of all people. Uh, what was he like to work with? Is he a funny guy on set? Um, <laughs> Jim is the best. He's he's an old buddy, actually, because we... Oh, yeah? Um, well, when I first started doing stand-up comedy in New York in the late 90s, mid-late 90s, Jim was already pretty well established in the mm. New York comedy scene, but but he wasn't like a big star necessarily um, the way he is now. I mean, he's one of the biggest comedians oh, in, yeah. in the world at this point. Yeah. Uh, where were y'all working? Like the cellar or? Uh, well, everywhere we could get stage time. And mm. for me at that time, it was um, just like bottom of the barrel, open mic nights yeah. and this and that. And occasionally <laughs> I'd get a little spot at, at the cellar or this place. 
the Boston Comedy Club. That's where that's where I worked the most, even though it was not in Boston. Uh, I used to MC a show there on on Monday nights, and and Jim came on it regularly, and and uh, and I just always looked up to him because he's such a hard worker and he's so mm -hmm. relentlessly funny. Yeah. Um, and, and he was always, amazing. and he was nice to me and that's, oh, yeah? <laughs> that's the <laughs> only that thing, rare? that's the only thing you need to do for me to look up to you is yeah. to be nice to me. <laughs> if you're, if you're further along in your career than me and you're not a total dick, then I will look up to you. But, um, he, uh, yeah, that is kind of rare, oddly in the comedy world. Um, yeah. And, well, and it's so competitive too. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're always worried about who you're following and yeah. who's going to go on that's funnier than you. It does seem to be kind of a cutthroat world, at least at that at the early stages, I suppose, when you're trying to get up there. Yeah, I think it's really right in the middle mm -hmm. stages where it gets cutthroat. In the beginning, oh, yeah. everybody's kind of you're all bad and you're all just kind of like figuring it out. And mm -hmm. and there's there's this sort of. I don't know. There's that you kind of feel like you're all at Paris Island, just going through uh, <laughs> like boot camp, get, getting your ass kicked all the time, and you're just bombing all the time. But you you walk off stage, and and if if other comedians are there, usually unless you're a jerk and someone mm -hmm. that that nobody likes, usually uh, when you bomb, the comedians are gonna high five you, and it's like it's just sort of a this a ongoing passage. Well. It would be a rite of passage if it was a fixed event yeah. that happened like like once. Yeah. But it is a it is a uh, it is a march of passage. It just keeps happening <laughs> time after time. Um, it's what separates the wheat from the chaff, so yeah. to speak. Learn yeah, from it thins it. The Stick herd. together. Yeah, yeah. And you wind up with a pretty tight clique. I had so many good friends in that world. But then when you get further along into sort of the middle tier where you're working more regularly, you're getting spots and you're getting, that's where the competition really mm -hmm. kicks in. Yeah. And then once you surpass that and you're, you're like a Jim Gaffigan, then everybody's just rooting for you. Cause you're, you're kicking yeah, ass. You've made you're it doing great. Yeah. 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 Now, that's interesting that you say all this because I never think of you as a stand-up guy. I always kind of assumed you came from an improv background. Mm, yeah. It's really was both. Really? Yeah. So I, I mean, I started in stand up and then when the Upright Citizens Brigade opened up in New York City, it just was so magnetic. It was something I just so wanted to be a part of. And yeah. uh, so I jumped into that world. But at the time, stand up and improv really were these kind of symbiotic things. Like there were mm -hmm. stand up shows at the UCB theater on a regular basis. Yeah, that's true. And I think okay. in other cities yeah. that they're more, it's all, it's more separated. Like in Chicago, there was almost like a rivalry between standups and improv. Right. But in New York, it was still this embryonic thing, the improv scene and comedians were dabbling in it and, and vice versa. Cause the, the early on UCB just needed to fill stage time mm -hmm. with whatever. Yeah. And around this time, you were, I guess, getting your start in voiceover. Isn't that pretty much how you were kind of supporting yourself? Just doing what, at commercials, yeah. Yeah, radio? Yeah, just TV commercials. Yeah. Mostly TV and radio uh, voiceovers. Um, what kind of things? It was, you know, it was right at the time when the dot-com boom mm -hmm. was starting. Really, the internet was kind of this, um, it was a marketplace, but it wasn't a uh, it wasn't a place for media yet. Mm -hmm. Matter of fact, one of my first jobs was cdnow.com. It was a website where you could go to buy discs of digital music. 
<laughs> and uh, yeah, and it was a big, it was a big website. What, where you what was would that go, like the the I'm the, saying the this, new version no, of uh, Columbia House or something? Or? Com- it was CDs, compact discs. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which which ironically is digital music in a hard format. Right. Yeah, it was they like a Columbia they didn't House manage thing. to pivot, huh? Like yes, Netflix did. Exactly. <laughs> it was uh, that's exactly the right analogy. It was sort of like a Columbia House mm-hmm. thing. What are what are some of the other commercials you did back then? Uh, I did so many. I, I was yeah. the I was the voice of Burger King for mm, a while for a good know, maybe a year or so. Um, which just really? means yeah. Like, and what, what, you don't, what would that be? You're, you're not the voice of the king. You're, you're no, no, like no, no, just, no. I was just you know, the, we I, have a special this week. Yeah, you know, so, six chicken nuggets or whatever. Exactly. It's funny yeah. because John Goodman at the time was like the the sort of celebrity voice of Burger King. Uh-huh. So he he sort of tagged all the commercials, but I was the voice in the commercials that literally just said like, two Whoppers for 99 cents, <laughs> you know, uh, or whatever, <laughs> whatever it was that week. Did you have a thing where you like the sarcastic guy or the in a world where guy, like what was your personality as a VO guy? I, I a little, I did have a little bit of a thing and it was just kind of, um, this was very much in vogue at the time was was the very dry read like um hey how's it going you want to get this product it's going to be really good you should buy it you know like that that sort of it sounds like the sham wow guy kind of <laughs> it's a little great. bit like nicholson like, in, in five yeah. easy pieces or something yeah it's, it's uh, like yeah i'm this product is way too cool for you but yeah. we'll let you buy it if you really want to exactly <laughs> and that was a try i mean every commercial you'd see on tv had that car commercials yeah. credit yeah. card commercials yeah. um fast food commercials and i i just did a million i mean it was <laughs> If I'm honest, I was incredibly lucky to have been um, to have the voice of the zeitgeist at the yeah. time, like yeah. the, to be the right age, to my yeah. voice have, having matured in exactly the right way yeah. and to have the kind of improv chops to interpret scripts the way yeah. I could tell they wanted to be. It was the snarky gen, what, what would that be? Gen X, yeah, gen, gen Y X. type yeah, generation. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> now, you went to school at uh, Oberlin College, right? Mm-hmm. Did, did you study acting there? Or how did all that begin? Um, I, I did. I took some acting classes and I was in some plays there. Uh, but I was really in, interested in film, mm-hmm. filmmaking. Really? Yeah, that was sort of, um, that was really what I, I pursued there and and majored in. And then uh, when I moved to New York, my first job was um, doing uh, tech support for Avid Editing Systems. Oh, okay. So you were working in production. Yeah. yeah. And, and, I, could, and, I, and I learned the Avid Systems really well. And that's when I got hired as an assistant editor coming off of that in a commercial post house. And that's yeah. where I that's where I was just sort of immersed in TV commercials. Yeah. That's going and, back to Avid. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I remember yeah. that from before I even went to film school, like communications. Yeah. It's like, you got to learn Avid. If yeah. you want to get in the business, you <laughs> exactly. got to know Avid. <laughs> yeah. And it was pretty fresh at the time. Yeah. Like it wasn't digital editing was kind of a new thing. Yeah. Getting that assistant editing okay. job was what sort of yeah. got me into the commercial world. And that's mm-hmm. where I got 
that's where I really honed okay. the voiceover skills. And now, how did you get the Daily Show? Were you a fan of the show before you auditioned for it, or how did yeah. that come about? Yeah, I, I actually was like a, a super fan of yeah. the show, um, okay. which so was you came in prepared totally. That yeah. that having watched the show so much and and uh, I just knew the rhythm of it, and when I got the audition. At that time, I'd been doing enough stand-up and improv stuff around in New York that um, for a bunch of years, and I was on Comedy Central's radar already. Mm -hmm. So they got me in for this audition, and it was a huge audition. It was like a big cattle call. But what's funny is in the audition, they just gave me a script that Stephen Colbert had done on the show maybe two weeks before. Oh, and I had obviously so, seen it, so I knew so exactly knew how they wanted to hear it and how Stephen had done it. And so I just kind of like, uh, I mean, I think everyone who's, who gets on that show, it's an open secret. You yeah. just do, you start out doing a Colbert impression. Like you start out just sort of mimicking Colbert and, and being as derivative as possible yeah. because he's sort of like, he set the tone of what... A, correspondent should be was this around the time that he left the show no it was oh, okay he this was, was still well on before it at the time. yeah okay yeah so he so steven and i overlapped um a good three four mm -hmm. years yeah i had the guy who wrote the book on the daily show on a while back and he said that the field teams used to be like the gonzo journalists or pseudo journalists who were allowed to get away with murder and do all kinds of crazy things or crazier things than you could get away with in studio. Was it like that when you were on the daily show or had that era kind of passed? Had, had, had it become a little more institutional by that point? I don't know. I mean, I think it was pretty wild Westy when oh, I yeah? got there. Um, it, there were still, there was still maybe a, a uh, 50 50 percent chance that that your interview subject would know the daily show um over the course of my time okay. there it became 90 percent that yeah. they would know the show but there um, were still initially people who you could catch them you could get well who just they, thought they that, just that they didn't were, know what the yeah they were just was. doing a, a news <laughs> interview or okay. whatever but it, it it didn't matter if they knew the show or not yeah. it really didn't affect how easy or hard it was to to hoist them on their own petard, so to speak. <laughs> I love that term, hoist on. I, I, I've heard it over the years so many times, and finally, probably a year or so ago, I looked it up because I was assuming Me it was too. a naval term. I, I read it's something like a bomb or something. Okay. But I, yeah, I remember reading it and being like, okay, that makes no sense to me. Yeah, uh, I always thought it was like a Navy thing. Yeah, it's yeah. hoisting. I mean, that's <laughs> a, all you do in the Navy is hoist stuff. Yeah. Now, you seem like a really nice nice guy you often play nice guys on tv and in movies um was it hard to be a nice guy and still play this game with the people you're interviewing and sort of set them up to dig their own hole or hoist themselves on yeah. their own petard um yes the short answer is yes absolutely yeah. um there were a few times that i just didn't mm -hmm. always feel at peace with it and I still yeah. look back. I mean, there's still a few segments where I'm like, eh, that feels, <laughs> that just feels icky. <laughs> like I just kind of, yeah. but, but I also was just sort of intoxicated by this opportunity and mm -hmm. what everything that was going on. And the times when you felt like you were really uh, kind of getting somebody who was 
a bad guy yeah, or a bad person, it. like someone who someone who really needed to be raked over the coals for some reason, yeah. um, or just had a really toxic mm-hmm. uh, point of view. Um, those were the times where it it felt I don't know worthwhile is a strong mm-hmm. word, but it kind of <laughs> felt like uh, like. Uh, probably like a little bit of you were doing some social justice there. In maybe. Some yeah. Sense. yeah. And maybe that's yeah. uh, kind of, yeah. Going back <laughs> Using to comedy for good, <laughs> going back yeah. to our opening conversation about yeah. uh, uh, rationalizing <laughs> things that are morally <laughs> ambiguous. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, uh, but that, it was a mixed bag. It was definitely mm-hmm. a mixed bag. And there were times I felt better about it than others. And that has to be hard doing those field pieces because, you know, here you're trying to keep the conversation going. You're reading the other person psychologically on some level, seeing where they're going with the conversation. You're setting them up. You probably have jokes that you want to get to. Um, It seems like a lot of balls to juggle all at once. You have to be pretty quick on your feet, I imagine. Well, it really was an improv game. Mm -hmm. And it was something that, that you, you know, we would prepare uh, relentlessly for those interviews. So when we would sit down with somebody, um, we'd have our list of questions, but you also have where the improv comes in is when you see an opening mm-hmm. or you see, cause very rarely yeah. would, would a joke, you know, uh, we approached it the way a lawyer approaches a, um, a litigation in court. You don't ask questions you don't know the answers to. So, Right. So you, so the the producer does a pre-interview with the subject and yeah. gets their point of view and all this, and then we okay. we would sort of craft questions knowing their point of view and what we thought they would say, and oftentimes they would sort of uh, do do it the way we expected, but it may not be as funny as we thought, or they may have a more nuanced yeah. answer that doesn't work, or like <laughs> yeah. you know, or maybe they were actually. Uh, onto it in some yeah. way and thwarted it. There ever times where you would get back to the editing room and just realize you've got nothing but an hour of garbage. Uh, I think one <laughs> time I had. Really? I, I mean, I don't, I don't know how many pieces I did. Probably, I don't know, fifty, sixty. Uh, one time I remember it just never coming together. And there, but there were <laughs> yeah. other times where it was really hard to build the segment. You wind up huh. kind of patching it with lots of voiceover and B-roll mm-hmm. and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. But um, but the best moments are, are the most honest moments when yeah. when somebody when you can really just tell that somebody is is real is being honest and uh, espousing a real conviction and but in a in a context that we've created that's that's funny or silly mm-hmm. for some reason. Um, I always loved to me, like this, the really silly stuff was my favorite, you know, the stuff yeah. that was more, that wasn't as, um, that wasn't as, uh, uh as much as a commentary maybe. Yeah. I mean, it was just, I, it was a more, vi- more victimless, I, I should say right. like, yeah. and yeah. I, and I really think that Steve Carell's legacy on the show was that like he, yeah. he sort of paved that path. Mm-hmm. Colbert was, um, was just a wizard with the kind of like wicked satire yeah. and then i feel like Carell's path was a little more just sort of like silly doofus mm-hmm. and um and they well, the, they're both so brilliant and i yeah. and i i stole 
so much from yeah. both of them. Um, it's also what you did with this recent special. Uh, was it the fake news with oh, Ted yeah. with Ted Nelms? Yeah. So on, did you on see Comedy that? Center. I loved it. Oh, thank I loved you. It. I'm so proud and of that. It wasn't snarky like that. Exactly. I mean, it yeah. wasn't. Yeah. It was just fun for the sake of fun. Yes. It was just so over the top and so absurd. I absolutely loved it. Oh, I, thank I was hoping you. that it would become a series. So. Yeah. We um, really worked hard to kind of stay away from. Uh, ridicule mm -hmm. in, or, or things that felt kind of like overtly partisan or mean-spirited mm -hmm. in any way yeah. on that show. I'm so proud of that yeah. show. I'm so glad was, you saw yeah, it. It was a blast. Yeah, it we're, so we're talking fun. about doing more and kind of figuring oh, out how to um, how to shape it. That was a one-hour yeah. special. It was a ton of work. I yeah. mean, the joke density on that show, I think, is what I'm most proud of. It's mm -hmm. like, I mean, it's like uh, 10 it was jokes. Like, uh, a Zucker Brothers movie or something like exactly. that. It was that kind of yeah. humor. Yeah, yeah, if I you're listening it. and you haven't seen it, go go see the fake news with, Definitely. with Ted Nelms. Uh, it was my Comedy Central special. I'm super proud of it. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more with Ed Helms when we come back in just a minute. Hey, folks. I recently had a very big milestone in my life. A few weeks ago, I decided to propose to my girlfriend. And when I did, I turned to adiamore.com for the perfect engagement ring. I shopped around for a month or two, looked online and in person, and no one beat adiamore.com for the best price and the very best quality. I even went down and met with the owner, Sam, in person, shook his hand, looked him in the eye, and talked about what I was looking for in a ring— He's a straight shooter, Sam, and I don't think I've ever met anyone who knows more about diamonds. He should, because his family's been in the jewelry business since 1950. Eventually, I decided on a stunning three-carat oval stone in a beautiful three-stone trillion setting, and my new fiancé couldn't be happier. Visit adiamore.com kick and browse their huge selection of diamonds to choose from. You can go on their site and try different diamonds with different settings until you come up with the perfect ring for you or the woman you love. All of Adiamore's diamonds are GIA certified and their rings have a lifetime guarantee against material defects. Plus, Adiamore even gives you 30 days to evaluate the deal and make sure that you're 100% happy with your purchase. That's because the folks at Adiamore know that once you find a jeweler you can trust, you've got a jeweler for life and you'll keep coming back year after year. But hey, don't take it from me. Take a look at the reviews on Yelp and do yourself a favor. If you're shopping for an engagement ring or a gift, even if you think you're going to buy from another dealer, before you make that big decision, you owe it to yourself to click on adiamore.com kick, look at their selection and compare. That's adiamore.com slash kick, A-D-I-A-M-O-R dot com slash kick. Their quality and prices speak for themselves, and my fiancé and I couldn't be happier. And now, back to the podcast. I feel like I don't see you as a super political guy. I don't recall you, you know, hate tweeting about the omnibus spending bill or DACA you know, yeah. on Twitter every morning or something like that. It, it just doesn't seem like your style. Do you consider yourself as very political? Well, I am very uh, much a news junkie. Mm -hmm. um, I consume lots of news and uh, and I do have strong opinions about a lot of things. Um, I'm a little more of a sort of conciliatory personality, I guess. Mm -hmm. 
But um, if you root through my Twitter or Facebook, you'll find a few kind of outbursts here and there <laughs> um, that betray yeah. uh, uh, some political dispositions. But mm-hmm. um, but I generally I try to just be accepting and open minded, and I really. I want the benefit of the doubt from the world. And so I try to give mm-hmm. the world the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> and I try to give even people that I disagree with or think are, um, are horrific on mm-hmm. the surface. Um, I, I try to look for the humanity there. Why is mm-hmm. someone doing this? Why are they behaving yeah. this way? Um, is that part of your Southern upbringing maybe a little bit, you know, you don't talk religion and politics at the dinner table. I, I don't think so. No? I actually think, uh, you're from Georgia, right? Yeah. I'm, yeah. I grew up in, in, in Atlanta and I, de- and my parents are very Southern moms from Tennessee and dads from Alabama. Uh, but, but ironically, uh, or, or I, maybe not ironically, but sort of against expectations, they were very progressive people. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were, very analytical, very uh, educated, and um, and my dad was a big news guy, and he was very active in politics in Georgia. Um, big Jimmy Carter guy, uh, oh, big yeah, Andy yeah. Young. He was very yeah, active in the in Andy Young's uh, first okay. mayoral campaign. Okay. Um, Andy huh. Young came to our house when I was a little kid, really? uh, and I uh, I just I remember him walking into our kitchen. And I had no, I was probably God, I must have been three or four or something. But you were a political family. You all had these kind of discussions and stuff. Yeah, yeah. but I think it was growing up in a. But I went to a, a high school that was uh, mm-hmm. a sort of affluent prep school mm-hmm. that was very conservative, okay. and so then I went to Oberlin College, yeah, was, which is very progressive, say, super liberal. College. Yeah, and I yeah. think <laughs> I don't know. I think it's the sort of juxtaposition of those yeah. experiences uh, where I have uh, maybe a unique. Ex- perspective on the kind of humanity of both sides yeah. and i yeah. <laughs> and i and so that's why I, I always just sort of look for that yeah. and and it's it's really i mean sorry to bring it around to the shameless shilling of chappaquiddick once again <laughs> but but it's it's really what fascinates yeah. me about that story and about mm-hmm. about the script it's what grabbed me so much is just the complexity of it it's like it's not yeah. it's never just as simple as you as you think and yeah, um, and I don't think that people have a, a much of a memory for it. I mean, certainly, I think you know, despite the fact that it's such a seminal political event in our modern history, if you ask the average millennial about Chappaquiddick, you'd probably get a blank stare from probably nine out of ten of them. Did you have much of a reference for Chappaquiddick coming I on? Did. To this? I did. I don't know why. Really? Maybe it's because my my parents were big Kennedy fans mm-hmm. and. Um, and I grew up just sort of in with a with a reverence for the Kennedy name and the Kennedy legacy. And I think uh, doing this movie for me was a little bit of um, a, a way to reconcile that because okay. it's, it's a way to it was a way for me to say like, well, maybe my reverence for the Kennedys is a little bit uh, steeped in mythology, and mm-hmm. I should take a more uh, just a more honest look at this and. Um, can I still uh, appreciate Teddy Kennedy's legacy despite this, yeah. this like horrible thing that he did? Yeah. And, uh, and then you, the more you dig yeah. into the Kennedys as a family, that? by the way, the mm-hmm. whole Kennedy family is oh. just steeped in like <laughs> some pretty grotesque stuff, but yeah, totally dysfunctional. Um, but then the speeches that Bobby Kennedy gave during, mm-hmm. uh, 
during just civil rights meltdowns. I mean, when mm-hmm. Martin Luther King was shot, Bobby Kennedy gave a speech, yeah. uh, it, it, like off the cuff, standing on a flatbed trailer in a black neighborhood in uh, Indianapolis, I think. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. Um, yeah. It was, a, it was just a brilliant mm-hmm. moment. And yeah. it's something that's sort of unimpeachable. Now I sort of look at it as, well, I do appreciate the great things that the Kennedys mm-hmm. did and stood for. And, right. I, and I don't apologize for that. The impact is that. still there, despite yeah. the personalities involved. And or despite yeah. some sort of behind-the-scenes machinations, which mm-hmm. are maybe horrible. And, I, and when I think of it that way, that's when, I can, that's when I look at a Trump supporter and I'm like, well, I guess that's how they see yeah. Donald Trump. Maybe. It's like they, they can accept all these this sort of like reprehensible behavior that's that bubbles up because they see an outward public value system that they identify with Mm -hmm. and that that he voices Mm -hmm. and and as long as he sort of pushes the right policies and does the right things a trump supporter is gonna sort of have his back Mm -hmm. and um and that's a weird thing I, i just think we're all so eager to find to point to what's flawed about our the opposition we just uh, venerate our own teams to a ridiculous level. And, yeah. uh, and it's important to, for everyone to just say, you know what, the people that we admire, they're kind of fucked up sometimes, <laughs> but they're still capable of doing yeah. great things. And where do you draw the line? I mean, mm-hmm. what Teddy did, how he handled that whole Chappaquiddick incident is, uh, it's reprehensible. Yeah. There's just, there's almost no, mm-hmm. It, 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 there's an argument to kind of like yeah. wash out his legacy there. And I, it's, it's complicated. And I don't think that you're alone in having these qualms about Teddy Kennedy and the, the Kennedy legacy in general. If anything, I'm kind of surprised that a movie like this ever got made in this town because the entertainment industry obviously generally leans left. I'm guessing that there are probably a lot of people who would have wanted Ted Kennedy to just be remembered as the lion of the Senate and probably weren't too eager to dredge up this chapter in his story. It can't have been an easy film to get made, I imagine. I, I don't know about that. I mean, I think you're right that that um, that no one wants to, s- or that that people who uh, are Kennedy fans um, aren't excited to see the any aspect of that legacy besmirched. But there's so much. I think two things. A lot of time has passed. For one. Right. And I think he's that no longer alive. He's, he's I don't no think it would have gotten made if he were still around. And a lot of a lot of the um, darker sides of Camelot as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Joseph Kennedy, their father, yeah. was uh, was akin to a mob boss in many ways. And yeah. it's like that's all on the record now. It's out there. I just yeah. don't think any. I, I didn't get a sense that people were too precious about it. Yeah. I, and even as a. Like I said, I mean, I'm someone who grew up with a with a real affinity for the Kennedy name, um, and for reasons I can't even point to. I, mm-hmm. I don't even know why, but I just even still, I this script was exciting to me because um, because it unravels mythology, and mm-hmm. I I support that. Yeah, and congratulations on pulling off your Massachusetts accent. Oh, that thanks. is not easy, I imagine, especially for a guy from Georgia. I mean, <laughs> many an actor has gotten pilloried for failed attempts to try and pull off a Massachusetts accent. I always think of Kevin Costner in 13 Days. Uh-huh. Um, did you work with a dialect coach on that? Yes. <laughs> uh, that, I mean, that that's one of the many things about this 
endeavor that for me was new and exciting because I've, you know, I've, I've lived in the comedy space for so long and it's, Mm -hmm. it's where I'm comfortable. It's what I love. It's what I always wanted to do going into this. uh, There's, it was, it was like, just, I felt so naked because there are so many things that were new to me, like, Mm -hmm. like working on an accent that I wanted to get really right. Yeah. Um, uh, portraying a real person feels like a loaded thing. Like that's a, that's a different responsibility. There's very little known about my character. So, uh, and it's even very hard to find pictures of him. Right. There's no Wikipedia page. I looked, um, tell us a little about him and his relationship to the Kennedy family and particularly Ted Kennedy. Yeah. So Joe Gargan is the character that I played and he, um, he had a very unique relationship, uh, he was a first cousin of um, of the Kennedys, and his parents uh, died when he was very young, um, and he wound up spending summers at Hyannisport with the Kennedy family. So he was uh, basically a sibling okay. to them, he was sort of an adopted son. Uh, yeah, to them. and uh, and he was a little older than Teddy, younger than than the other brothers, and. He was, as they grew up, uh, Joe was kind of Teddy's protector and then later kind of a fixer, although not a fixer in the um, creepy sense because it's by all indications. Backroom type sense. By all indications, Joe always had a pretty intact moral compass, Mm -hmm. and that's a little bit of his role in the movie as well. Yeah. Um, he always was just sort of, uh, he had Teddy's back and, and there was a saying in the family, old Joey will fix it. Mm -hmm. So, and and it gets referenced in the movie and Joey was a bit of a babysitter and protector. Mm -hmm. Right from the beginning, you kind of see where it's headed because you and Teddy are not operating on the same moral planes really. And you go from this deep love for Teddy Kennedy and this belief in the legacy of the Kennedy family to this utter disillusionment at what he becomes over the course of a few days. I guess it really comes down to you versus Joe Kennedy and the Kennedy machine fighting for the soul of this still young, very confused man. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, yeah, I love that breakdown. I don't want to give too much away. Um, <laughs> but uh the other thing that's really powerful in this movie, uh, and that I think was incredibly powerful at the time, was uh, the notion of family and mm-hmm. what being a Kennedy meant. And not just being a Kennedy, but being in the Kennedy orbit. Mm-hmm. And there's that speech in the movie where Teddy says to the Boiler Room girls and, and Paul Markham and, and Joe Gargan, he says to them, you know, you're all Kennedys. You can imagine how intoxicating that would feel if you were yeah. someone who worked for the Kennedys and here was a Kennedy calling you that name and sort of bringing you in uh, close to the vest. Yeah. And that would just feel uh, so, uh, it, I don't know, it would just it would just be an incredible mm-hmm. feeling. And so, And I think that's what then Teddy exploits mm-hmm. is that loyalty that... Um, that everyone around him has and, and not just Teddy, but Joseph as the patriarch, uh, you know, he brings in the yeah. the war room out at Hyannisport with yeah. like Played Robert McNamara and, yeah. and 
uh, Ted Sorensen. I mean, these brilliant yeah. political minds all set to just trying to get Teddy off the hook. Mm-hmm. Like that is, <laughs> I mean, that yeah. is a, that's loyalty to something. That's a, yeah. that's a, uh, uh, sort of a twisted well, sense, then, but it speaks to the power yeah. of the Kennedy name and the power that yeah. Joseph, uh, wielded, uh, sometimes recklessly. Yeah, it's interesting when you get into the whole Kennedy apparatus and the machine that snaps into action once the events of Chappaquiddick unfold. Um, I wonder, that was such a different time. I mean, three networks, the New York Times, the Washington Post still dominated the media. Do you think that this scandal would have played out the same way in this day and age? Everyone's no, a journalist. nothing you know? is the same. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, do you think uh, he would have gotten off the way he did? Well, well, I think we've learned something um, a little bit startling in the last year or so, which is that um, that accountability for uh, for bad actions rests on an acknowledgement that the on an assumption that a perpetrator will acknowledge the wrongdoing. Yeah. And if they don't, if they just hold the line that that either they didn't do a thing or that the thing they did wasn't bad. Yeah. Then then you have no recourse. Yeah. And, and that's it's a that, horrible lesson. Yeah. And that that's something that that um, that Trump has taught us in a in a very sort of scary way. Um, and uh, and yeah. I don't I don't know that anyone had considered that. Mm-hmm. If you just stick to your message, you're fine. No matter whether it's true or not, or or you yeah, and you just kind of um, you just bully the message, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, and and if 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 you don't ever accept responsibility for something, then then your accusers, no matter how uh, right they may be, um, are left saying, "But you still did this thing. You did it. Why? Yeah. You got You should step down, right? Or you should you should acknowledge something, and then." And then they they come across shrill, and mm-hmm. and you're you get to just stay in power or keep your position. Um, yeah. And I don't. I think that's different. I yeah. don't know that. Like I don't. I don't think that's what Teddy did. Um, and, Interesting. Uh, that said, um, the biggest difference would be just the news cycle and mm-hmm. the the social media aspect. Yeah. To it. Because this got bumped off of the front pages for a while because it was the same day as the moon landing, exactly. right? So they, they were yeah. kind of counting on that to turn the page on this story before yeah. it was over. Well, yeah. and the the news cycle now, there are so many streams of news that it's, um, yeah. I, I have no idea. It's, it's the answer to your question. It's I have exhausting. no idea how it would have played out now. Well, as we talk about you know life decisions and human frailty, I want to ask you if you have some overarching philosophy of life because I know that you <laughs> you gave this commencement address at Andy Bernard's alma mater, Cornell, right? And in it, you encouraged graduates, as you put it, to be a fool in life. Mm. What do you mean by that? It was uh, well. Wa- watch the speech; it's on YouTube. Okay. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Uh, no, I put That's a lot easy. of work in it. You know, it's yeah. funny. A lot. I've done a number of commencement speeches, and I really enjoy it because mm-hmm. it's a um, it's a real exercise in. It, it forces me to dig deep and kind of mm-hmm. like what what do I what can I impart to young people that might be meaningful? Yeah. Um, and the answer is not very much, but uh, <laughs> but I can. Uh, I a lot dig of people would stuff. disagree. Apparently, um, it was very popular. But, Very well received. Uh, well, I, I I put a lot of work into those speeches, and and that one in particular, um, 
usually I, I did a lot of research on mm-hmm. uh, on commencement speeches. Really? Uh, I listened to tons of them just okay. to kind of like get get my bearings and see what worked and what doesn't. And one of the things I learned, and this is that the ideal commencement speech is between 12 and 13 minutes. Right? Okay. So, so I did one at Knox College and it came right in at like 12 minutes and 30 seconds or something. And then Cornell invites me and... Uh, and they stipulate it has to be 25 minutes. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, which is twice as long, <laughs> twice as long as the uh, standard, as like the ideal commencement yeah. speech. So, um, wow. So I really kind of went. Pressure. Yeah, had to <laughs> get after that one and dig deep. But the the be a fool uh, kind of thesis of that is really just about um, allow yourself to kind of stumble through things because you won't know how the things that you're doing now are going to pay off mm-hmm. later on. Okay. You won't know. And, and also don't be afraid uh, to make mistakes. It, Would that be exactly kind of all way that saying stuff? It? Yes. Yeah. And yeah. Um, yeah, just allow yeah. yourself to sort of stumble and enjoy those mm-hmm. stumbles. If you can, if you can find yeah. a, find a way or a point of view that, um, but, uh, yeah, but it's much more nuanced message. than that. Yeah. yeah well, well, it's better than you are the future. How did you do it? Yeah. <laughs> How well, you know what's you funny? Make it so I did realize that yeah. all the great commencement speeches, and there mm-hmm. are lots of lists of like the best speeches and so yeah. forth. And you look at, if you listen to lots of them, they're all some version of Carpe Diem. Yeah. Like that, that is, it's always the, at, at their heart, That's it's so sort true. of like, yeah. and so you just have to find yeah. your version your of version. Carpe Diem. <laughs> That's um, great. And yeah. Now, do you still have a bluegrass band? Yeah, of course. Yeah. I love bluegrass. Uh, it's like my, yeah, that's, that's what I live for. That all dude. this, all this, all this movie star crap is just to support my <laughs> bluegrass habit. Um, have you played with Steve Martin? Uh, he has I a have. very fun. Oh, you yeah. have you all played together. Yeah, okay. we've we've played together um, a number of times. Yeah, I love bluegrass. I got to see you guys perform one of these days because listening to live bluegrass, it's just such a visceral thing. It just gets into your feet and your body. And, yeah. Well, yeah. Th- I, there's something about, I mean, acoustic music. When you hear like complicated music coming at you. Mm-hmm just through vibrations in the air, not like through electricity yeah. in any way. It's a, yeah. it's a really primal thing. Yeah. It's a primal connection. And it then, is. I mean, the reason I got into bluegrass in the first place was, was in my kind of uh, angsty teen years. I was just <laughs> you looking to bluegrass. I did. Well, I was just looking teen. for, uh, uh, <laughs> I was obsessed, a very Holden Caulfieldian uh, search for authenticity, you know, okay. like looking for the roots of yeah. things, looking for the early right. versions of things. Which and, is popular now. Like uh, roots music is, you know, yeah. whether it's early New Orleans jazz or blues, bluegrass, that's all suddenly coming back and we're discovering the earliest versions of American music, which is exciting, I think. I, I think yeah. it speaks to a, a yearning in, in, in a cultural yearning for, for authenticity, for something that's, yeah. that's closer to the bone, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. uh, I actually have a, uh, not just my bluegrass band, the Lonesome Trio, but um but a uh, uh, a website called the Bluegrass Situation that's really kind of a news and in- info oh, site cool. for all just roots music fans. Beautiful BGS the the bluegrasssituation.com. <laughs> okay, well before we wrap up here, I was tooling around on your IMDb and I saw somewhere that your nickname in school was Chuck E. Cheese. What's the deal with that? Um, thanks for bringing that up. Uh, <laughs> is that an embarrassing situation or <laughs> well, no, I think ski ball. Let's know. just say, uh, that in adulthood I've grown into my features. 
but as a teenager, my <laughs> oh, my mouth and my <laughs> nose were probably a little bigger than oh, okay. than the rest of my body, and my and the older kids on the swim team thought oh. that I resembled. Uh, the uh, mascot for a certain pizzeria chain. And, <laughs> oh, uh, poor kid. It's all right. You know what? Kids the, can be cruel. No, everyone, it's a badge of honor. Like the more harsh and mean your nickname was on the swim team, yeah. the more of a badge of honor it was. Yeah. Like that's yeah. that's okay. that weird, twisted teenage okay. logic. Can I just uh, say spokesperson deal? Mm. No? I, I, no? I'd rather run from that <laughs> okay. than run towards All right. it. <laughs> All right. Well, Chappaquiddick is in theaters starting Friday, April 6th. Ed Helms, thanks for talking with me. It was fun. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks again to Ed Helms for coming on the podcast. Chappaquiddick opens in theaters tomorrow, Friday, April 6th. Follow Ed Helms on Twitter at, at Ed Helms. Check out his website for bluegrass lovers at thebluegrasssituation.com and his own band, The Lonesome Trio, at thelonesometrio.com. Folks, if you're an entrepreneur, a small business owner, or even if you have a side gig, let me introduce you to Grasshopper, the entrepreneur's phone system. Grasshopper lets you send and receive calls and texts from your new business phone number. That way, you can run your business from anywhere and respond to clients quickly with Grasshopper's mobile apps. Grasshopper, sign up today. Go to grasshopper.com kick to get $20 off your first month. Again, that's grasshopper.com kick. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on iTunes and leave us a review. You can follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at at kickassnewspod. And as always, I welcome your comments, questions, and ideas at comments at kickassnews.com. I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kickass News. Kick-Ass News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.